Welcome to the November 9th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the prognostic significance of splicing factor gene mutations in newly diagnosed AML. Learn more about the findings from a multi-omics study of therapy resistance in multiple myeloma and discuss the effects of kit ligand deletion on systemic kit levels and hematopoietic stem cell homeostasis. We first examine data in the blood article entitled, Venetoclax abrogates the prognostic impact of splicing factor gene mutations in newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia by Jayastu Sanapati from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and colleagues. Pathogenic mutations in RNA splicing factor genes lead to abnormal functioning of the spliceosome complex and promotes oncogenesis through alternate splicing. The most commonly studied splicing factor genes in myeloid malignancies are SRSF2, U2AF1, SF3B1, and ZRSR2, and, when mutated, have been shown to confer adverse risk in AML. In AML, splicing factor mutations are enriched in patients with secondary AML or de novo myelodysplasia-related AML. In a recent study of 500 patients with de novo AML, of which 73% received intensive therapy, harboring a splicing factor mutation was associated with a negative prognostic impact. A different study has shown that splicing factor mutations often co-occur with RUNX1 mutations and lead to outcomes comparable to historical adverse risk AML. Based on the results from these and other studies, the European LeukemiaNet 2022 classification for acute myeloid leukemia has included AML with splicing factor mutations in the adverse risk category. However, these studies were largely based on data from younger patients treated with intensive combination chemotherapy, and the observed adverse outcomes may not apply to patients receiving other treatment regimens. The current study aimed to evaluate the independent prognostic significance of splicing factor mutations in a large cohort of patients with newly diagnosed AML. The retrospective study included 994 adult patients with newly diagnosed AML, treated at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center between January 2017 and April 2022. Based on a cutoff age of 60 years, patients were stratified into young and older age groups. 266 of 994 patients, or 27%, harbored a splicing factor mutation. Treatment information was used to stratify patients into either intensive or low-intensity therapy groups. The use of venetoclax in the frontline treatment regimen was also documented. All patients had an 81-gene next-generation sequencing panel performed in an in-house certified laboratory. Four splicing factor mutations were analyzed, including SRSF2, SF3B1, U2AF1, and ZRSR2, treatment response, relapse-free survival, and overall survival were included in the analysis of treatment outcome. 
The median patient age was 67 years overall. Patients with a splicing factor mutation were older, with a median age of 72. The most common splicing factor mutation, SRSF2, represented 53% of all detected splicing factor mutations. In patients treated with intensive therapy, median relapse-free survival and overall survival were significantly shorter for patients with splicing factor mutations compared to patients with wild-type splicing factor. However, this significance disappeared in patients who received venetoclax in combination with intensive therapy, suggesting that venetoclax may alter the prognostic impact of splicing factor mutations. In the low-intensity therapy group, both relapse-free survival and overall survival were similar in patients with splicing factor mutations and those with wild-type splicing factor. With the receipt of venetoclax, these outcomes improved in both groups. In multivariate analysis, harboring a splicing factor mutation did not affect the risks of relapse and death in patients receiving intensive therapy, while both risks were reduced in patients receiving low-intensity therapy. The authors concluded that harboring a splicing factor mutation did not have an independent prognostic impact in patients receiving venetoclax with low-intensity or intensive therapy and that novel prognostic models that take into account the use of low-intensity therapy and venetoclax are needed. In an accompanying commentary, Parish Vyas from the University of Oxford in Oxford, United Kingdom, notes that the findings of Senapati and colleagues suggest that recurrent mutations in splicing factor genes may not confer an adverse prognosis in patients with AML treated with venetoclax-based therapy. However, Vyas cautions that given the heterogeneous, retrospective nature of the studied cohort and imbalances in the risk factors between mutated and wild-type splicing factor gene, the analyses of this data need to be interpreted with caution. However, this study reinforces that the prognostic value of splicing factor mutations, as well as any other prognostic biomarker, needs to be assessed in the context of treatment administered because the observed effect may not be consistent across different types of treatments. Since splicing factor mutations are more common in older patients, in whom the standard of care has changed to low-intensity regimens based on venetoclax, there is an unmet need to identify a new, validated prognostic tool for this group of patients. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Resolving Therapy Resistance Mechanisms in Multiple Myeloma by Multiomics Subclone Analysis by Alexandra M. Puth from the University Hospital Heidelberg in Heidelberg, Germany, and colleagues. Treatment resistance in cancer is a consequence of intratumor heterogeneity and the emergence of multidrug-resistant subclones after several lines of treatment. Multiple myeloma is a perfect example of this process. It is characterized by the clonal expansion of malignant plasma cells in the bone marrow. Relapsed refractory myeloma is especially difficult to treat due to the emergence of multidrug-resistant subclones. Therefore, the key to identifying common vulnerabilities in multiple myeloma lies in the characterization of resistance mechanisms at the subclone level. To date, multiple myeloma subclones have been defined by single-cell RNA sequencing from the analysis of transcriptional clusters and copy number alterations. 
Moreover, genomic, transcriptomic, or epigenetic sequencing data have uncovered molecular mechanisms that govern treatment response in multiple myeloma. Also, single-cell RNA sequencing methods have provided information on the interplay between myeloma cells and the cells of their bone marrow microenvironment. However, studies have largely been based on single readouts, and thus the multifactorial nature of therapy resistance, the co-occurrence of different resistance mechanisms, and changes with treatment over time in multiple myeloma remain poorly understood. To address this knowledge gap, in the current study, the authors integrated single-cell RNA sequencing, single-cell chromatin accessibility data, bulk whole genome sequencing, and bulk RNA sequencing data, combining copy number information with mitochondrial DNA mutations to define subclonal architecture and evolution in 15 relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients. Serial bone marrow samples and related clinical information were obtained from seven male and eight female patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Sequencing experiments were performed according to previously published protocols. Subclones were identified by supervised, iterative, hierarchical whole genome sequencing guided clustering of specific chromosomes and chromosome regions. The authors identified mitochondrial DNA mutations using chromatin accessibility data and used those mutations to refine the subclone evolution patterns predicted by copy number alterations. Using mitochondrial DNA mutations, investigators were able to further delineate the copy number alteration-based subclonal architecture and found an average of four subclones per patient with matched transcriptional and epigenetic profiles. Next, they investigated the impact of treatment on individual subclones in all patients with multiple identical subclones that were present at both time points. This analysis revealed a parallel occurrence of three different resistance mechanisms. The first mechanism associated survival advantages with pre-existing epigenetic profiles of subclones. The second mechanism was based on converging phenotypic adaptation of genetically distinct subclones, and the third mechanism pointed to subclone-specific interactions of myeloma cells and cells from the bone marrow microenvironment. Following, the authors investigated whether differing subclonal properties can contribute to differential treatment response by comparing the changes in clonal populations after treatment. They found that differences in the interactions between the tumor and bone marrow microenvironment underlie differential treatment responses. As an example, they found that CD44 expression was significantly upregulated in patients with TP53 biallelic mutations compared to patients with wild-type TP53. CD44 is a key cell adhesion-mediated drug resistance molecule and a known mediator of tumor-bone marrow microenvironment interactions. The high CD44 expression was decreased upon MCL1 inhibition, suggesting that CD44 could serve as a potential therapeutic target in multiple myeloma. Based on their findings, the authors concluded that an integrative multiomics analysis can be applied to characterize and track distinct multidrug-resistant subclones over time, with the goal of identifying molecular targets against them.
In an accompanying commentary, Mehmet Samour from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard School of Public Health in Boston notes that the study by Pus and collaborators shows that combining research techniques provides an advantage and opens the doors to numerous future applications. In multiple myeloma, this approach could be used to evaluate cells from precursors to newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, assess the effects of specific treatments, as well as evaluate the effect of targeted therapies versus immunotherapies. However, Samour also points out the shortcomings of the multiomics approach, which include difficulty studying branching evolution patterns due to the limitation of existing single-cell platforms. In addition, mutations were not considered in the current study, even though they may have a significant role in multiple myeloma subclonal structures. He suggests that spatial technologies may be useful in future studies and that new investigations of mutation-driven subclones could combine whole transcriptome sequencing with chromatin accessibility data, or DNA and RNA single-cell sequencing data, for a more comprehensive picture of therapeutic resistance. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Loss of Endothelial Membrane Kit Ligand Affects Systemic Kit Ligand Levels But Not Bone Marrow Hematopoietic Stem Cells by Sahoko Matsuoka from the University of Oxford in Oxford, United Kingdom, and colleagues. Hematopoietic stem cells, or HSCs, regulate the production of all blood cell lineages throughout a person's life. They are localized in specialized bone marrow microenvironments, or niches, where their self-renewal, function, and quiescence are regulated by a series of intrinsic and extrinsic cues. Although the characterization of bone marrow vascular and paravascular niches has been the subject of investigation in recent years, the influence of local bone marrow niche versus systemic cues on HSC function remains poorly understood. Moreover, research in this area is hampered by the lack of tools that enable the discrimination of local from systemic cues. Kit ligand is the ligand for the C-kit receptor on hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells that plays a key role in the regulation of hematopoietic stem cells. It exists in both a membrane-bound and soluble form. Early studies in mice that express soluble kit ligand but lack membrane-bound kit ligand revealed significant defects in HSCs suggesting that membrane-bound kit ligand is especially important for the maintenance of HSCs. In a recent study, conditional deletion of the kit ligand gene in mice, which is required for both membrane-bound and soluble kit ligand expression, led to reduced numbers of HSCs in the bone marrow. However, since circulating soluble kit ligand levels were significantly reduced in both models, conclusions could not be drawn about the specific roles of local membrane-bound kit ligand versus systemic soluble kit ligand in maintaining bone marrow HSCs. The goal of the current study was to investigate the distinct roles of membrane-bound and soluble kit ligands using a mouse model that selectively depletes membrane-bound kit ligand in endothelial cells. Mouse, bone marrow, and spleen HSCs, myeloid progenitors, and peripheral blood cell lineages were analyzed using flow cytometry. 
the assessment of HSC activity was performed using competitive, long-term bone marrow reconstitution experiments. To further evaluate the role of systemic soluble kit ligand, the authors performed renal capsule whole bone transplantation assays. The findings revealed that the combined deletion of both soluble and membrane-bound forms of endothelial-derived kit ligand causes a reduction in the number of HSCs in the bone marrow. Notably, the deletion of endothelial-derived kit ligand was also accompanied by reduced levels of the soluble kit ligand in blood, making it impossible to conclude whether the reduction in HSC numbers was due to reduced endothelial expression of kit ligand within HSC niches, elsewhere in the bone marrow, and or a reduction in systemic soluble kit ligand produced by endothelial cells outside the bone marrow. Targeted endothelial deletion of the membrane-bound kit ligand caused a reduction in systemic levels of soluble kit ligand without an effect on stem cell numbers, pointing to a regulatory role of soluble and not membrane-bound kit ligand in endothelial cells. When bones from mice with a kit ligand deletion were implanted in mice with normal systemic levels of soluble kit ligand, three weeks after transplantation, there was no significant difference in phenotypical and functional HSCs in the bones. This finding provides strong evidence for the critical role of systemic soluble kit ligand and not membrane-bound kit ligand in the regulation of HSCs. The authors concluded that their findings highlight the need for more specific tools to uncover the roles of regulatory factors expressed in hematopoietic niche cells in the bone marrow. In an accompanying commentary, Sen Zhang and Sandra Pinho from the University of Illinois at Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, Note that the study by Matsuoka and colleagues identifies systemic soluble kit ligand as a key player in HSC homeostasis, in contrast to the previous notion that local membrane-bound kit ligand within the HSC niche is the critical factor. In addition, these latest findings unravel the complex interplay between soluble and membrane-bound kit ligand in different tissue niches. Although the study suggests that HSC homeostasis primarily depends on systemic soluble kit ligand, Zhang and Pinho note that further in-depth analyses are needed to understand how the expression and shedding of membrane-bound kit ligand influence the levels of systemic soluble kit ligand. More studies are also needed in the early postnatal bone marrow, in light of the recent finding that targeting membrane-bound kit ligand in endothelial cells causes a reduction in HSCs. Lastly, these latest findings call for a re-examination of the HSC regulatory effects of other known niche factors, both membrane-bound and soluble, and highlight the need for more specific genetic approaches to identify the functions of distinct niche factors. The newfound understanding of the regulatory mechanisms governing HSC maintenance could have important implications in regenerative medicine, bone marrow transplantation, and cancer treatment via manipulation of systemic soluble kit levels. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. 
be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.